Hello, and welcome to episode 121 of Church and Maine. Welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host, and uh, happy December, happy Advent. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about transportation. And I've always been someone that has been interested in transportation. I guess that is par for the course. Uh, when you come from Michigan, when your parents both worked in the auto industry, you're going to be someone that's going to be interested in getting from point A to point B. And um, I'm fascinated by all types of transportation, by planes, trains, and automobiles. Yes, I did purposely put, do that. Um, I love talking about things like mass transit and um, high-speed rail. The thing is, basically, if it has wheels, I'm interested in it. You know, I can remember as a kid, I was always, um, by our long drives um, from Michigan to Louisiana to see relatives, but I just kind of also had a fascination with the interstate highway system. All of that is just, I'm, I'm, I'm really into uh, transportation, um, and maybe at some point I could have been, um, you know, interested in doing some type of engineering of some type, but that never happened. But so, you know, oh, well, but, you know, one of the forms of wheels that I, I have been interested in that I did not mention is the bicycle. And I remember as a kid tooling around my neighborhood in the 1970s, I can remember being maybe eight or nine and, you know, going a block or two away from my, uh, where I lived was it was like encountering a whole new world. And um, as I got older and got into my teens, I started to bike farther and farther away. And I remember um, biking as far as the, um, the very, the huge Buick city complex um, back in my hometown of Flint, Michigan. This was in the mid eighties. I had to be about 14 maybe. And it, it was, it was to me, it was cool to be able to bike that far. Um, kind of bike around where my dad worked for a living. Um, my mother, though, was not so crazy about me biking that far away. But, um, you know, that's kind of what happens as a kid. But, you know, now I'm in my 50s and I'm realizing in some ways I need to get back into exercise after all of the COVID years. So I'm looking at maybe hopefully at some point this winter, early spring, uh, getting on a bike again and heading out on the road, um, exercising on two wheels. The interesting thing about the biking world of the 2020s is how different it is from the 1980s. Um, if you go back to the 1980s, most people, they, they either biked, you know, for exercise or they were with something that kids did. Um, and, um, that's not 
really the case anymore. I mean, those things still happen, but it's very different, especially where I live now in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, along with um, St. Paul, basically give Portland, Oregon a run for its money as um, America's most bikeable cities. Um, Many people here in the Twin Cities like to bike to work, and um, they don't really let a little thing called winter stop them. Um, Even during the long and very cold Minnesota winters, what you'll see are people on their bikes. They will be heading to their places of work, and usually what they do is they trade in their um, smaller bike tires for those really wide tires that help with uh, traction in the snow and ice. Um, They will continue to do that. Um, And I think while America is nowhere near the Netherlands when it comes to biking, I think that for millions of Americans, um, biking has become a legitimate form of commuting. Um, this has all made me think about, you know, how does making your way around the world on a bike different from driving a car? And how does riding a bike or even walking impact your Christian faith and the ministry of the local church? So my guest today is someone that is also interested in transportation but he has taken his interest one step further to make it an issue of discipleship for him. Travis Norville is the pastor of Judson Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And about a decade ago, he decided to put his money where his mouth is. And he gave up his car um, and started getting around uh, Minneapolis via bike, public transportation, or on foot. And when he did that, he started to really see the world and the, and the neighborhood around his congregation in a very different way. And Travis has become an advocate for helping Christians in many ways get out of their cars at least once in a while and move around their world in a different mode of transportation to see what they might be missing, and especially around their church. Travis has written about his um, experiences um, in a book. Uh, He is the author of the book, Church on the Move, A Practical Guide for Ministry in the Community. And um, as I said, he talks about his story and also how you can become more familiar with the neighborhood around your church. And uh, stay tuned in this podcast because one of the reasons that – I got to know a little bit about Travis, and I had known a little bit about him beforehand, but really got to know about him because he kind of became an unofficial um, kind of traffic person, bike traffic uh, uh, report reporter for uh, Minnesota Public Radio, um, and I think you'll in, you'll enjoy hearing his his tale about how that happened. So. With all of that, let's listen to Travis Norville.
Travis, thanks for taking the time to chat with me to this morning. Oh, thank you, Dennis, for having me. Thanks for the invite. Very glad so, to be here. Great. So I think maybe the thing to start out with is that you have an interesting story about how um, you ended up kind of looking at the world from a kind of a different viewpoint um, instead of from a car, from um, from public transportation um, and biking. Um, this is an interesting subject for me. Transportation has always been a fascinating thing because I'm I'm um, originally from Michigan, um, hmm. and both my parents worked for General Motors. So um, I really am always fascinated about all different types of, of transportation. I mean, I definitely because I'm from Michigan, I'm a car guy. But you know, <laughs> biking, public transportation, trains. Planes, I'm always fascinated by that. So I'd like to hear your story about how you kind of came to this kind of revelation of how to see things from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'd be glad to. Um, so about 10 years ago, it was in the middle of what we call in Minnesota a polar vortex, uh, which should which should scare most people, uh, and myself included. Um in the middle of all that, I had a car that I, I dearly loved. It was a Volkswagen. I bought it in New Orleans. It was. I, I later learned that it was flooded during Katrina, so it was had some problems that that wasn't on the title. But that's okay. Uh, I had, I loved this car. It had heated seats. That was the one thing I really wanted. And um, you know, one day that the the heater broke in it, and I'd poured all kinds of money into it, and I was like, you know, I'm I'm tired of doing this. So that was a thing that was going on in my life. And then I preached a sermon on kind of really just a basic kind of social justice sermon. Uh, my daughter at the time was 11. Uh, she was listening and I, I posed a question, you know, what are you willing to sacrifice so that others may experience joy? Um, and, and, and I, and I go to tell her goodnight and I, and I said, goodnight, uh, Seneca, I'll, you know, see you in the morning. And she just said, hold on, dad, you know, you asked in your sermon, what others are willing to sacrifice so that some may experience joy. And I'm just curious, what are you going to sacrifice? And, you know, at that moment, I just felt complete, like a complete phony uh, to her and my mouth went ashen. I didn't have an answer for her. And I just said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you soon. So that night I, um, I turned the dining room table into kind of a makeshift midlife crisis center and had, you know, laptop and four or five notebooks and, Stuff And I said, okay, I'd always wanted to ride my bike and take public transit and walk. Uh, but, you know, I'd tried several times. but couldn't really figure out how to do it. And so I spent that whole night just figuring it out. And so that morning and breakfast, I just say, hey, kids, I've got, uh, I've got to, I've, I'm going to sell the car and I'm going to ride my bike and walk and take public transit. And they had this look of abject horror on their face, which they should have, um, thinking that this will affect them. But I said, no, this is just my deal not yours. And they, they breathed a sigh of relief. And I said, we're still going to keep the van. Uh, so we'll be okay. So, so that started it. Um, and from there I just started, I just started walking and I ride my bike and taking public transit. And I, it was a complete, you know, reorientation of life. Um, you know, I got, to, I mean, like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a liberal social gospel preacher, you know, that's my tradition. And I realized that I was hardly spending any time at all with, with the poor, with those with their backs against the wall, just uh, people struggling to go get by in life. And But you're on a bus, and that's who you're sitting with. And you hear their stories, and you hear their 
um, passions and joys and heartbreaks. Um, it was just amazing. When I walked, I ended up finding my neighborhood that I didn't know existed. So, you know, I know houses now by smells. You know, I, I know which house is cooking, you know, Italian on, on Wednesdays and which house is cooking curry on Thursdays. I mean, these things you just get to know. Um, and on my bike, I just, you know, I realized, um, you know, a lot of people are trying to uh, make it in life. Um, by that, I mean, just, you know, they're, they're, they're struggling financially and they're on a bike because that's, that's all they can afford. Uh, and realizing that how can cities really lift these people up and more and how can churches be more part of their lives? I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. So I, it probably helps to understand what is the neighborhood like around your church? Um, oh yeah. I I'm familiar with it cause I, um, we're both here in Minneapolis, but for people who aren't there, how would you describe the neighborhood? Yeah. My, my neighbor, it's South Minneapolis and this is a residential neighborhood. Uh, and I can cross about three or four different kind of economic zones uh, with houses that are very nice. And one um, within a stone's throw of the church is the you know, former ambassador to Morocco lived. Um, I can go in the other place. I can go 10 minutes in the other direction. And that's the site where George Floyd was murdered. Um, if I go a little bit farther south, you know, I'm, I'm in kind of the lakes area. But there's, there's lots of lakes here. Uh, I mean, lakes, I'm in uh, six sections of town where everyone looks like me, you know, as a white cisgender male, but I can go just a little bit further and be in a totally place where hardly anybody looks like me. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, I should say one thing, where the church is located, it's a very stable, comfortable uh, neighborhood. The neighborhoods around it, you know, are in transition and, and they're full of wonderful people, but there's a lot of pain in them as well. So how has your, do you think your ministry has changed um, by being able to take public transit or walking or taking the bike um, as opposed to driving? Yeah. It made me a lot more focused. Um, you know, I think most times as a pastor, I would think of my parish really as kind of like the Twin Cities, uh, which, which it, you know, in some broader way it is. But, I mean, that's a lot to take on for one church, you know, uh, so by shrinking it down to really a parish size model, what I call a bikeable parish, which is about, you know, a 15 minute ride from my house to the church. And, you know, this is kind of kind of in vogue in, in Europe, these 15 to 20 minute cities, this idea of neighborhoods. Um, well, that focuses where, where I am and, and who I'm coming in contact with and really trying to get to know the neighborhood. Uh, and by, by doing this, I found out that, you know, no one knows hardly anything about the church I serve. Uh, they don't even know it's here. I, you know, I have people that live within uh, just around the block. Uh, uh, well, perfect story I have is one of the persons who was the chair of the neighborhood association. I was having coffee with him and I asked him, what do you know about Judson church? And he said, I'd love your yellow Adirondack chairs. Uh, and my thought was, well, that'd be great, but we don't have any chairs. We don't even have any grass uh, at our church. And I realized he thought that we were the Episcopalian church about, you know, half a mile down the road. And, you know, for most times, I would love to be confused for an Episcopalian priest. Uh, but that wasn't, you know, this wasn't the case. So I realized that people don't know hardly anything about the church or who we are or what we're about. And walking the neighborhood and riding my bike in the neighborhood and taking public transit in my neighborhood at least put me in contact with people 
and having relationships with him that I wouldn't have had in a car. And I think that's really been the change. It's been more community focused. Um, and I, and I feel, you know, when I pray for the city of Minneapolis, I'm really praying for the people that I run into every day. Uh, and they're telling me what their stories are. And, and those really inform how, we, how our approach to ministry at this time. So you had talked about the fact that the church is not far from um, where George Floyd was murdered back in 2020. Um, how did that event really, and because of, by that time you were, of course, that, you know, basically didn't have a car and all that. Um, how did your approach to that event change from what could have been if you were still just having have, had your second car? Yeah. Again, it's all about the vulnerability and exposure part of it. So when, when George, and after George Floyd was murdered and when I got the, when we all got the word of it, you know, I just, I just hopped on my bike and rode to 38th in Chicago uh, and start, you know, you met people instantly. Uh, and I would go probably, geez, I don't know, for months, it seemed like I went every day or at least, you know, four or five times a week. Uh, and, and what that enabled, how that kind of changed me and how it kind of changed the church Again, it was relationships. You know, you started meeting people, you started hearing what needs were. And I was able to say, hey, there's, you know, to kind of coordinate with other churches that were um, providing really just basic needs, but also just doing some wonderful ministry uh, work there. Um, you could kind of direct and say, hey, I, there's a church over here that needs diapers. You know, that's what the community really needs right now. And you could put that word out and people got it. Or we knew that um, like Appetite for Change was really struggling and needed all the help they could because they were providing meals not only for people in need, but Appetite for Change at, at every protest, at every um, community event. They were there with grills, feeding people, and just providing this space of wonderful hospitality. Um, and I think, I think we raised you know, $20,000, $30,000, you know, just putting the word out that, you know, that this is going on. And, and on a bike, it just enabled me to get from A to B a lot quicker. You know, there were so many places that were streets were blocked off. Um, protests were happening. The police had other places blocked off. But on a bike, I could kind of zigzag through all these places uh, and get from A to B and, and talk to people and hear what was going on. And that was that was a big change. Um, I could I could see that. And, you know, there would be I, on, a, on a bike, I would pass people in cars, you know, because they just couldn't go anywhere in the city, there was so much clogging of traffic, but on a bike, I could kind of zip around and I could kind of fly under the radar. You know, I had my clerical collar on and no one really paid much attention to me. So, uh, yeah. And how do you think all of this, especially how, I mean, I think as, as, as the role of a pastor, as leadership is, is sometimes uh, we're basically models of how, People are, are, are people are obviously looking to us as role models. Does, has this had an effect on 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 the congregation at Judson in any way that have other people kind of joined in or or if not, maybe seen things from a different perspective? Yeah, I think there's been several ways. You know, I, when I started this, this is my own apprehension as a as a leader. You know, I, I'm not I wasn't doing this so that other people would mimic it, you know, or I, I said, look, this is just, this is what I feel God's called me to do. It's not an indictment on you if you drive here or, you know, anything like that. 
Um, and I kind of just left it as that to see how it would organically happen. And what, and what did happen and what is happening, you know, on some Sunday mornings, there are quite a few bikes that are out there or people will say, Hey, I took the bus from this day. And this was my story that I heard, or, Hey, I'm starting to walk the neighborhood more. So, I mean, there, there is kind of that multiply effect of people doing it. But I think really about, about two years ago, I, I just thought to myself, I think I'm going to go all in uh, with it. I'm just going to commit to this as not only just my thing, but how can this change the church's approach to the ministry that we're doing uh, to be more community focused? Um, you know, and I think that's been helpful for people to hear more stories about the neighborhood. Um, and it gives us more of a sense of, okay, we're going to try to do things with the largest impact within the Kingfield neighborhood and then hope that it kind of spreads and ripples out. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of clarity has really helped people. Um, I mean, the best example I can give is just you know, a few weeks ago, we did a pie baking uh, seminar. We just, we told everybody it's, you know, it's the holiday season. And if you're intimidated by baking pies, We've got some church ladies that are going to teach you how to bake a pie. And, you know, we had about 20 people here. Only four were from the church and the rest were all from the neighborhood. Um, so just that kind of thinking that, that before all of this, I don't know if we would have been thinking like that, but it, it's helping us. And so one of the things also um, that I have heard a little bit about is how do you use spaces that aren't always used throughout the week and probably obviously there are lots of church buildings that aren't used out the probably one other thing that isn't on the church probably isn't always used as much during the week is the parking lot um <laughs> so i'm kind of curious that you have an interesting story about how you're using that or um and kind of really kind of doing more than just having it as a space to for for cars to put to yeah well and, yeah, you know the funny part is we don't have a parking lot um uh you know as a as a kind of a landlocked church we don't we don't uh, have a parking lot okay. uh, but my idea the the what i'm trying to encourage other people to do um if you don't have a parking lot if you do have a parking lot you know change it into a church plaza uh so it's not just there for only for the temporary storage of automobiles so if you know anything about Minneapolis, you know that we are kind of in Lutheran world and there are some gigantic, you know, uh, ELCA churches here and they're doing great work and I love them. I think they're great places. They have these gigantic parking lots and I like to take pictures of the parking lots throughout the week just as an example to see this thing is hardly ever full. You know, maybe on a Sunday morning they're full. Maybe if there's a large funeral, they're full. But the rest of the time at the best, it's 25 percent full. Uh, so how can we use this space in more productive ways other than just thinking of it as just a place to store cars? Uh, and uh, some examples I have, you know, why can't we bring back basketball courts for church parking lots? I, I, I grew up playing church, in church you know, basketball in church parking lots. Um, with biking, you know, rather than how about a vacation Bible school? Also, how about a vacation bike school to help the people in the neighborhood, both young and old, uh, learn how to ride bikes. Uh, it'd be a great way for to have an e-bikes on uh, an e-bike expo, so people could figure out how to how to ride them. Um, just all kind of you know skills course for kids to be able to weave in and out of cones or something. We have, there's all kinds of stuff laying around in churches that could be used as uh, 
uh, you know, obstacles to get around and move. Um, I think of, you know, farmer's markets, uh, places there's the Kingfield neighborhood farmer market, farmer's market has moved three or four times, you know, just, okay, where is there, is there a church parking lot? It could be, uh, housed in, um, it also is just growing food. Um, you can grow food in a parking lot. You can take two spots with uh, straw bale gardening. You can produce enough food in the one summer to uh, um, feed a family of eight. Uh, I think it'd be, you're not really talking about giving up great amounts of space for that. Um, and the one thing that people don't realize is that in most cities, uh, church parking lots are kind of this free, like a free zone. Um, by that, you have all these zoning requirements, usually within uh, cities that prevent uh, new developments or uh, new things. But in church parking lots, they have this weird autonomy that doesn't exist anywhere else in a city. Uh, and some of this, and some churches are experimenting by taking tiny homes and putting them in their church parking lots and housing people that are that are um, experiencing homelessness. Uh, there's one church that's trying to just take homeless veterans and give them a place. And they are using their space in this way. They're, they're doing maybe three or four, creating a little village. And then they're using the, the already existing infrastructure in a church. So for a shower or a community kitchen or the library as a study and communal gathering space. And then providing this, you know, kind of like living quarters and these uh, tiny homes. And I think these are just fantastic ways to show that a parking lot, can be a plaza, can be a place of life, and it can be a place of uh, growth, uh, both internally and externally, uh, than just this place where people store a car for a few hours. And I think if we just start thinking about that, really, there's an abundance of space that we have available, and how can we use that in a better way? Yeah, you know, the China home, I think you might be talking about the settled um, ministry. That's one is, of them, yes, yes, yeah. 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 Um, and actually, the where I work during the week um, is a Lutheran congregation in Forest Lake, mm -hmm. um, which is an exurb of the Twin Cities that's trying to do that same thing. Um, they have a big parking lot that they have more space than they could use. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a great idea of using some of that for people who don't have a home and to have some homes. Um, so, yeah, I... I wholeheartedly agree with that one. Uh, <laughs> all, all the ideas, but especially that one. You know, I find that, you know, there's a church, um, First United Methodist of Los Angeles, that sold their building and all they have is a parking lot. Um, so every Sunday they, you know, they haul out these tents and they have a church service out in the parking lot and then they take the tents down and then they uh, rent their parking lots out uh, for the rest of the week. And then they're also using it for overnight. You know, a lot of people, they're living out of their cars now. Uh, and they are letting people come into their church parking lot, park there for the night, providing them free Wi-Fi, you know, a little bit of services of what they can, at least just also just a safe place, kind of a protected space. So th yeah, there's all kinds of things we should be th could be thinking about. Yeah. I don't think that that probably would work in Minnesota, but... No, yeah. but yeah, Los Angeles, yes. Yeah, Los Angeles, no, yes. They can let that happen, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It would. You'd have to wear lots and lots of parkas. <laughs> but you know. Um. So one of the questions also is, you know, 
this is we kind of talk about this as a con from the context of of urban um, churches. Um, what about suburban or rural churches? How does this kind of whole thing work from that perspective? Yeah, and that's a question that people have asked a lot, you know, uh, in response. And I, and I get that. I really wrote the book for small neighborhood urban churches. I mean, that was my focus. But but I still think there's, there's some of these applic- some of the things can apply. Um, you know, when I was back home, I'm from West Virginia, uh, and and for the just for the heck of it, I, my mom lives in a small town, and the bus terminus is behind her house. So I wanted to see if I where could I take this bus to. Um, I could take that bus for and ride it. I couldn't get over this for 52 miles from her house to the farthest part point in Canal County uh, for two dollars and fifty cents, and it would take me to all kinds of places. Now that doesn't mean that every rural or small town place in America has this kind of bus system. But I'm like, okay, if this can happen in West Virginia, it can probably happen in a lot of other places uh, as well. So what infrastructure is there and how can it be uh, utilized? And and the other part is that I know a lot of suburban churches and uh, rural churches have vans, you know, have church vans. So why, if you don't have the public infrastructure there, why not use what you have? You have a church van. Uh, Why couldn't it be a public witness that a church fan is going to go around and pick up as many members as it can on a Sunday morning. So at least nobody's riding alone uh, you know, to get to church. At least there's this somewhat of a communal feel uh, that can happen. And I also find that in a lot of suburban churches, they have resources that urban churches don't have. I mean, they do have space. And, you know, there are a couple of places that uh, you were talking about uh, parking lots. I mean, they usually have bigger parking lots than urban churches. And there could be some partnerships that develop between an urban church and a suburban church uh, and even a rural church. You know, how can we think of ourselves not as just three separate churches um, or maybe more than that, but just thinking of ourselves as one body with uh, different members that that, you know, relates to their neighborhoods in different ways, but can use resources to help each other out. Um, I think there's there's a there's a potential that I think could could. Uh, could be there. Um, and I also go back to my hometown, you know, um, St. Albans, West Virginia, maybe 10,000 people. Um, but you know, it, it, there's a lot of self-contained communities, you know, in America, small towns that have grocery stores, post offices, maybe some kind of medical clinic, you know, that could, uh, in many ways be bikeable cities, uh, and could help out with wealth. I mean, not with wealth, but with health. Uh, it maybe could generate a little bit of wealth, but taking away the expense of a car. Uh, that you could be maybe a little bit stronger of communities. Um, so I think those are the parts where I think uh, this this idea could be a little bit more uh, integrated into. But I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm in some ways I'm aspirational with this. Do you think that there is also something that in um People in churches just, even if they do, they're not going to give up their car, still just walk around yeah. their, their church for the heck of it. I mean, yeah. You know, uh, is there something to be said about just getting out and walking, um, not doing anything special, but just getting to know the neighborhood? Yeah. I, I think, you know, let's say that you drive to church. 52 Sundays a year, and you're never going to stop that, right? I mean, there are people, and I find, I'm sure like in your congregation and other congregations that are listening, right? We have people that 
the church that they love is the only church that provides them community. Uh, and so they, they, they seek it out for what it provides for them. And you don't want to make anyone like that feel ostracized from that. Uh, but I think there is a, a great value in having people, you know, just walk your neighborhood as part of Sunday worship. Um, one, th- one of the things during the pandemic, you know, we weren't meeting in person uh, that much. So I would just say, hey, on Sunday at 11, we're going to meet at the church and we're going to do a bike ride around the neighborhood just to say hello. And I was surprised at people that just joined us on these uh, bike rides. Um, I've, I've, I've got an idea. This is another aspirational one that I, I, I just learned and I haven't had a chance to do it. But, you know, in the Episcopal Church, there's this rogation days. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Where you're supposed to walk the uh, walk the parish, kind of the outline of the parish, walk the parish, and that was supposed to be a way to connect the parish and the kind of the farms that are on the outskirts of the city. Why? I mean, why couldn't you know urban churches, suburban, rural also have that same practice? You know, we're going to once a month, we're going to have a rogation day. We don't have to call it that; it can be whatever it is. We're just going to walk. Maybe we're going to ten minutes in one direction, and then we're going to form a, walk a circle around there. And just to see who we meet, who we engage. Um, I, you know, and I would say that I would suggest this. Uh, a few years ago, we did a, there was a woman who painted these wonderful murals on, um, on garage doors uh, in South Minneapolis. And we wanted to see them. So we had a map to walk through where they were. And walking on the alley as opposed to walking on a sidewalk. I couldn't get over the the different way that people interacted with you on a, on a, on a sidewalk, you know, you're knocking on somebody's door and they think that you're a do-gooder or you're trying to sell them something. But on the alleyway, people were just more engaged. I met more people in the alley uh, than I ever have. Uh, and more, I had one person walk up to us, say, Hey, what are y'all doing? And I, we told them what we were doing. They're like, Hey, we just moved here. Can you, can you tell me where the best spot to get ice cream is? Um, and, and we told them, well, what, I really like this place. And someone said that I like this place. So it was, uh, it was just an interesting way to meet people, you know, in your neighborhood by walking in the alley as opposed to on the sidewalk. Yeah. I do some walking in my own neighborhood in North Minneapolis. And it's mm-hmm. fascinating to sometimes go down the alley instead of the, mm-hmm. the sidewalk. It just, you see dip things, different things that you wouldn't normally see if you're just walking down the, the regular sidewalk. Um, so, yeah, and, and a lot of those are hidden, right? That people yeah, want to have yeah. privacy, and I understand that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's something that I, growing up, we didn't um, have an alley, which is kind of a driveway into my, into a garage. So mm-hmm. there's something I like about the the alley that's a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit more interesting than just having a driveway. Um, yeah, yeah it's totally more interesting. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, one of the things that you have been um, known for, um, at least here locally, is that you um, kind of do, I guess, biking traffic reports for um, Minnesota Public Radio. Um, how did that start? Well, so last winter, I was reading a book by Catherine Hayhoe, you know, that um, climatologist uh, shoot, and I can't remember the title of the book right now, but it's a wonderful book, and I recommend everybody to read it. Um, but she had this wonderful line is, stop stop thinking about, stop and for climate change, stop thinking of all the things that you can't do or can't be changed. Can you find one area where you can make a difference? 
and offer someone an alternative. That, that maybe that's where you start. So I, I had that book. I had those lines in my head. And then I was listening to Minnesota Public Radio and they were giving the traffic report and it was, you know, 18 wheeler jackknife on I-35 or there's a car fire at 280, you know, all these kind of things. And so on a whim, I just texted the, you know, the, the personality, Kathy Werzer, and said, hey, Kathy, if I give you uh, bike reports on what it, what the what it's like on the bike lanes for the winter and sidewalks and stuff, would you tweet them out? And she said, sure. Uh, I found out later that she thought it was just a lark and <laughs> like whatever. Uh, and so we started doing it and she started reading them. And the response was, was pretty amazing. Um, people started to enjoy them. And then I, and then I realized I have to write these little, you know, I've got 280 characters to try to describe both the uh, sidewalk bike lane and road conditions, but also try to make it just intriguing enough that someone who's not walking, biking or riding would at least be aware of what's going on. So it, it became a kind of a challenge, a fun challenge to, to how to describe the way the snow was interacting with the road. Uh, and that happened. And then a, a couple of people picked it up. Uh, the idea that, that there's, there's an article in MinPost. And then I was doing a podcast about this was right about the time the book was coming out, too. And a guy from England was uh, interviewing me, and he writes for Forbes magazine too. So then he did an article on Forbes magazine about it, which made this, you know, this ridiculous kind of, you know, thing that you know these little tweets. All of a sudden, we got more exposure, and then I got, and then I got, <laughs> I got all these emails suddenly from. I've, I've tracked it down to three continents. You know, people wanting to know how do you do a winter bike commute report for the radio? Uh, hell, I don't know. I'm just goofing off. Um, <laughs> A lot of fun, and I, I mean, I, I mean, I make no money for it. I mean, they don't even give me an NPR sticker um, or anything. But I, but I know that we did make it into the twice. We've made it to the NPR pledge drive, you know. Uh, so I think it's fun. Yeah. So you know, I mean, how has um, one of the things I, I I've known um, living here um, now for about twenty some twenty five years is how much this is truly a winter. People don't stop biking just because there's snow on the ground. Um, <laughs> you know, they, you know, put on their bigger tires and, and just keep biking. It doesn't matter if it's 20 below, they're still doing that. Um, what has been the, I mean, what have you learned? What have been the challenges for you um, biking during the winter time? Well, there's, there's thousands of, you know, I, I you know, you, you learn your limit about what you can and can't take. Um, and, and for me, it's when I walk into the office or in a meeting or wherever, and I start talking to someone and in my head, I sound normal. Uh, but to other people, they're like, I can't understand a word you're saying. And I realize my jaw's frozen and I'm just kind of, you know, everything's just a big mumble. So I'm slurring everything. So I'm like, okay, maybe I need to stop that. But you know, I, I've learned more than anything is, you know, you got to move in the winter right? and and, and you got to figure out ways to get so you get whatever vitamin D you can get, get it. Uh, and I find that, that, you know, there is kind of seasonal depression that happens here and, and, and I've suffered with it too. So trying to do anything you can helps uh, with that. And it's made me really appreciate, I mean, I loved winter before. I love it even more now. It just gets you out, expose you to other people and it's a great, you know, great conversation. I love it when a car pulls up to me and they roll their window down and they, and the person starts having this conversation with you at the stoplight. 
And I use every opportunity as a as a, a little bit of evangelization. Like, hey, you can get out on here too if you thought, you know. Um, so that and the, and the group of winter bikers, you meet them, you get to know them, and it's, and it's almost like you got a little bit of a camaraderie. And uh, when you see each other out, it's it's more than just a hey, how you doing? It's really kind of more of a Star Wars, you know, may the force be with you kind of nod that you give to each other. And I appreciate that. So I think uh, getting close to wrapping this up, I'm kind of curious, as opposed to kind of other metro areas around the country, how do you see the Twin Cities when it comes to biking? Um, You know, I think that there are obviously... I did a lot more biking when I was younger in the eighties and everything. And it seems like things have changed a lot. There's much more accommodations for bikes, but um, I'm kind of from your standpoint, how does Minneapolis St. Paul stack up to other Metro areas um, when it comes to, to biking? Yeah. You know, um, every, you know, every time I go on a conference or anything, you know, first thing I do is go to try to find an REI cause you can rent bikes pretty cheap there you know, get on a bike and see what the city's like. And I got to say, you know, I know that our rival here in Minneapolis is Portland to try to see who's got more bikers, but I, I love twin cities as far as the infrastructure we have, uh, the accommodations, like you say, um, I just think that we're ahead in a lot of, of a lot of other cities. And if you want to try to do this, um, I think this is the place to be. I was talking with a theologian the other day who's, also a big transit person. And, and I asked her, you know, I got a sabbatical coming up. I'm like, where do you think I should be? You know, where, where should I go to study to figure out what we should do? And, and her response was, you, you got to stay where you're at. You know, you got to like really dive into the Minneapolis, St. Paul, you know, Hennepin and Ramsey County. Cause I think this is going to be the center of alternative transportation in North America. And Here's if you're going to try to figure out how churches can be more beneficial or be a part of this. She said, I think you just need to spend that sabbatical here trying to figure out what's going on. Um, so I think that's a pretty big you know, endorsement of kind of where we're at and what we have to offer. That is. I was yeah. actually, we have no hills. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> that, that helps because <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't think I would do well if it were San Francisco. No, um, no. Or Seattle, you know I mean? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 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 So that's interesting because I was going to, I was guessing maybe she was going to say Amsterdam, of course, because. Oh, well, oh no, so of well course, known, of course. Right. But, I mean, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that, that is true. That is a very whole different ballgame, but that is a ringing endorsement uh, of the Twin Cities. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, I did speak with a librarian um, at a seminary in, uh, in Amsterdam and, and I asked him, can you tell me like who, can you tell me about the way the churches are, integrated into church. I mean, bicycles are integrated into church life. And his response was, I don't understand your question. Uh, so I asked him again, he was like, no, you don't understand. Like there's, there is no separation. Like, you know, bicycle life is just part of who we are. It's, it'd be really hard to try to separate it out from that. And I was like, okay, this is a whole new place we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have not been to Amsterdam. I, I'm curious to go. Yeah. Um, same here. So I um, usually when I go abroad, I'm I, again because I'm a car guy. I'm always interested in what kind of cars and all that. But <laughs> there, I want to see what kind of the whole biking thing, just because it's such a fascinating how much they are into that and oriented. I mean, they actually have bike like freeways and all of that. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. I'd love to to um, visit and just learn from that. 
And, and, and you know, there's surveys that come out that show that it's the um, the happiest drivers in the world are in Amsterdam. Um, I mean, you take so many people because there's so many people that are off the road. They're biking in a different way. They're walking or taking public transit. So the streets aren't really crowded. So it's a great place for people to drive, um, they say. That is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yes. I find it fascinating too. But I, I'd love to go and fi- figure that out. But yeah. Well, Travis, thank you so much. This has been a great um, thing. We've been able to kind of talk about things I really like to talk about, which is transportation and <laughs> churches. And I didn't think I could ever have an interview that would put those two things together so thank you oh, thank you Dennis. it's been delightful i love this thanks all right take care you too I hope that you enjoyed the episode and there will be uh, links um, to Travis's book um, in the show notes. Um, Just wanted to uh, just before we go to um, let people know or, or ask um, people to consider making a donation um, to support church in Maine. It does. um, There is some cost in getting this up um, and online and um, if you are someone that likes to hear this type of con- of, of um, innovative content, um, consider making a donation. And you can do so by going to churchinmaine.org, and there is a link um, for uh, to give a donation. Um, I'm still kind of, it, as I said, our um, the podcast is now on Substack, and I'm you know trying to. F- figure out if I want to do something to uh, put some things behind paywall or all that stuff. And I, you know, I kind of go back and forth on that, but I do want to at least give people the option that if they want to give, they can. Um, it's not necessary. You don't have to, and I'm not guilting people um, into not doing that. So, but if you would like to, um, that would be helpful and welcome. Thank you. Also, um, please consider subscribing. Um, you can subscribe directly to um, uh, it by going to uh, churchinmain.substack.com and subscribing to get get it uh, straight to you via email. Um, you can also subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Um, just to um, that is a good way to not have to you know try to dig and find a podcast, and then also. Finally, consider leaving a review. Um, when you leave a review on your podcast app, like Apple Podcasts, um, that makes it easier for the algorithms to help people find this podcast. And um, would love to uh, hopefully get the message of this podcast out to more people. Um, if you can do that, that would be great. Thank you so much. Uh, hopefully, there will be at least one or two more episodes before the year closes out. Um, 
still kind of working on that, but of course the year is moving fast and, uh, I also have my other duties as a pastor trying to get everything done during this time of the year. So I'm hoping that we can have something out, uh, some new material out soon, uh, just to let you know about that. So uh, that is it for this episode of Church and Maine. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Again, thank you so much for listening. That it means a lot. Take care, Godspeed, and I will see you very soon.